Greetings, listeners. Welcome to the Cold Fusion Now podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in the science, engineering, and business of Cold Fusion Leonard. I'm your host, Ruby Carrot. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Francis Tanzella, just retired as Program Manager of Low Energy Nuclear Reactions at SRI International. After earning his PhD in chemistry from UC Berkeley and studying electrochemistry as a postdoc at University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Tanzella worked as a chemist at DuPont. After joining SRI, he used electrochemical techniques to monitor chemical reaction rates in many processes, including hydrogen and palladium. Dr. Tanzella has helped develop the Low Energy Nuclear Reactions Electrochemical and Calorimetry Program at SRI, including electrical, electrochemical, and acoustic stimulation of the palladian hydrogen systems to yield Lenner processes in solids. In addition, he's used different experimental nuclear measurements to determine the presence or absence of nuclear particles in Lenner processes. He's hosted many other Lenner researchers in attempts to reproduce and understand their devices, and he's currently consulting privately. Wow, thank you for being with us, Dr. Francis Tanzella. Uh, I'm very welcome. Uh, good to be with you this morning, Ruby. <laughs> Dr. Tanzella, you are one of the early pioneers in this field. Uh, let's start at the beginning. How did you first start researching cold fusion? Well, I joined SRI in 1986. Uh, Mike McCubrey was a program manager in the electrochemistry program, and we were studying a few different things, but one of them was using a palladium sensor immersed in water to measure the amount of hydrogen that was in that water. And <laughs> the need for that was in nuclear power plant cooling water. Uh, it, that was actually quite important. They adjust the dissolved hydrogen and dissolved oxygen in nuclear power plant cooling water to avoid having what they call hydrogen embrittlement which, or corrosion from the oxide, which can cause the cooling water piping and tubing to fail. Uh, the interesting thing about that is we were essentially passing current through palladium while it was immersed in water. And interestingly, even more interesting at the time, um, uh, I actually had tested that in a nuclear power plant down in Florida when we found out that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission wasn't going to allow us to put our device in the real system. So um, Mike went up to the Chalk River uh, research facility in Canada where they do their nuclear power plants in heavy water, D2O. Mm. And as it turns out, on the day of the Fleischmann Ponds announcement, Mike was actually up there testing the system, passing current through palladium wire immersed in heavy water. Oh, <laughs> so, 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 um, and the fact that, that Mike knew both uh, Martin Fleischman and Stanley Pons, um, he felt that having heard that announcement, it was something worth studying. Hmm. 
And so we asked our program manager at EPRI, who was Tom Passel at the time, EPRI is the Electric Power Research Institute, which is a research arm of essentially all the electric utilities in the country, uh, or at least it was an independent research arm. And they had a strong nuclear power system, and so that's why we were studying it. So we asked our program manager, uh, Tom, if uh, we could divert a little bit of money and a little bit of time to see if we can figure out what this was and whether it was real and if the measurements being reported could be uh, reproduced. Um, Tom agreed, and we put actually put together a group, and that group you know, shrunk over the years. But the three of us, uh, Tom Passel, Mike, and I, have continued on for 29 years since. Hmm. How long was the EPRI, the Electric Power Research Institute, interested in this? Well, we continued on in smaller increments and then uh, more and more uh, of these smaller increments until... The management at EPRI got very interested, and in late 1992, uh, they asked us to put together a rather large program, Mm. and we did. And when they funded it, they actually built our our main laboratory, about 2,000 square feet in an empty space at SRI, and furnished it with another large amount of money. I want to say the laboratory construction was about half a million dollars, and then the equipment that populated it and the materials was probably another quarter of a million dollars. And Mm. and so they funded us for a few more years, I would say, till about 1995. And when we moved into that lab in 1993, we had between eight and ten people in the group And that had shrunk down to about three of us by 1996. And soon after, uh, it was only two of us, and we weren't even working full time after that. Hmm. And and that's when the EPRI money essentially went away, and we moved on to other clients in this field. Hmm. Well, you certainly did a lot of tremendous experiments with that equipment. And um, I want to talk about that more uh, later. But uh, just staying with the beginnings of this, because we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of that announcement. Um, I know that you were at that first annual conference on cold fusion at the net at the National Cold Fusion Institute. Can you just describe what that first meeting was like and uh, the excitement that people felt back in 1989? Well, in 1989, there actually were a couple meetings before that. Uh, The first uh, cold fusion meeting was actually held a year after the announcement. Uh, But uh, I have to admit that... That's right. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Thank <laughs> but, you. But, uh, well, but there were other meetings. Um, 
the Electrochemical Society met only a few months later in Los Angeles, and we went down there, and it was it was just amazing. Uh, normally, you go to these electrochemical meetings, and you know, most of the symposia will be a room with 30 to 75 people. But because um, Martin and Stan were talking, they actually put together in an auditorium. I would not be surprised if there weren't a thousand people in the room uh, back in spring or summer of 1989. Hmm. And, and that was only one of them. There was another one that I didn't attend. Um, our group had grown so large that we couldn't afford to send everybody to all the meetings. But they were very exciting. They were, oh, to some extent, like a a church revival uh, in that everybody was excited. You know, it was, some of it really had a rock star feeling to it in, mm. in the meeting in there. Um, and, and I like your question about the National Cold Fusion Institute, although by a year later, a lot of all the hoopla had died down. It was more uh, workaday type, which was actually good because there were people who had done quite a bit of work during the first year, and it was great uh, to meet them, most of them, for the first time and see what they had done and see what uh, what we could do uh, because we were doing all kinds of different things early on, as was everybody. The field became extremely diverse uh, almost immediately in the first month. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, but it was very nice to uh, to get together with those people. There were a lot of interesting people at the uh, at the first conference and I was privileged to have the opportunity to attend. Um, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the diversity of experimentation. I know that when the announcement was made, not a lot of details were given in the paper and um, it was a fax <laughs> and people had difficulty reading it as well. And so maybe the fact that the uh, information was so low resolution, people had to become more creative to fill in. What do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. Um, a lot of it, I say, you're probably right. Half of it was because the information wasn't that dense and well explained. That's actually was part of Martin Fleischmann's personality. He was he was always the professor trying to teach you by <laughs> making you work out the problem yourself. Mm. Uh, he, he once claimed that all the information that any good electrochemist needed to reproduce it was all in that first paper. And that was probably true, but um, a lot of people who were not trained in electrochemistry tried to reproduce it, and that's part of the reason why they moved on to other things. But the other half of the reason is people had already established their careers in other areas of plasma or gas phase reactions or catalytic uh, heterogeneous catalysis and, and all of that and arcs. And they just felt, and then they understood. 
that they didn't understand enough electrochemistry, weren't experienced enough, but they were experienced in this other field. So it was just easier for them to adapt it to that. Um, and then mm -hmm. a lot of the other diversity uh, came for financial reasons. Um, the Palladium <laughs> D2O system is not cheap. And so people, especially the people who were on very restricted budgets, decided, okay, if it works in heavy water, maybe it'll work in light water. Um, palladium's not the only metal that absorbs hydrogen. There are a lot of cheaper ones out there, uh, like nickel and titanium and vanadium and even iron. Um, so people went off in those directions. And it was a very exciting time to see this diversity. Mm. Uh, yeah, and they were successful in those directions as well. Y yes, there were a lot of people reporting positive results in experiments that didn't at all resemble what uh, Martin and Stan were doing. Well, with all these diversity of experiments, I know that SRI International also had a variety of experiments uh, talk about the diversity of experiments that SRI International worked on in your lab, and why did how did you choose what to do with all of that diversity? Well, interestingly enough, of course, very early on, um, we we were qualified to reproduce the Fleischmann and Pons experiments as explained, so mm -hmm. we started. We started there, and probably in retrospect, that was the most exciting because you you were now doing something that these people had made a major announcement, um, well, the cover of Time magazine, uh, a press conference, uh, which is never, ever, or almost never done in science. Um, and so that was very exciting to be part of that. But as the group grew, we would actually have group meetings and sit around and brainstorm to try different things. And we tried different uh, configurations, different pressures. We actually ran a very high-pressure electrochemical experiment, something on the order of 5,000 PSI, uh, which nobody else had done. Mm. And that... Sh but as with everything, if you design something very complicated, it tends to get difficult to get done properly, and there are always failure points. And that particular one, we had very high hopes for, but it was just too many technical problems. Well, but mm. we we had all of these. Most of them we named after people. There were different program. Um, managers that succeeded Tom Passel at EPRI, and very often we'd name an experiment after them. Uh, mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, the first set of experiments, which lasted for three, four, five years, were called P1 through P21, uh, P standing for Passel. <laughs> <laughs> so... But yeah, and those were more in the original vein. But then we had stuff named after different program managers. We actually had people come over from Lockheed with 
x-ray detection equipment and we designed an experiment that fit inside an x-ray detector. And so we were all learning, all of us at SRI, were all learning about uh, nuclear radiation and the measurements of it, uh, except for one person we hired in early 93, who was an experimental, or still is, an experimental uh, nuclear measurement person. So, so that was exciting to see them. And, and probably the most exciting was the one experiment that uh, we put together inside a, a large gamma spectrometer. Um, one of the things Tom Passel uh, is what they used to call a, a radio chemist, um, a radiation chemistry of radioactive materials. And he insisted that we put together a large radiation detection system. And there was one experiment that uh, we took the cathode out of an electrolysis cell, laid it on top of this extremely sensitive, very low background gamma spectrometer, and saw a metastable silver isotope decay in front of our eyes. And, and that that was very exciting. It sounds like Tom Passel really had a lot to do with the success of the SRI lab. He, yeah, he, oh, if it weren't for Tom, of course, there would have been nothing um, because we would have never started. But then, yes, Tom really decided that we needed to be able to look just in case there was radiation there that could help convince or help prove that we had a process that was safe. And that even carried on well into 2001 when we convinced DARPA to buy us a helium mass spectrometer to look for different isotopic ratios of the helium isotopes. So yeah, Tom had a very strong influence. And uh, to this day, of course, Tom has his own little lab down in Mountain View. He shows up three to five days a week and putters around doing experiments, trying to prove his hypothesis of what's actually going on. More recently, you've led a team investigating the Brune Energy isoparabolic hydrogen hot tube. And you found that they are able to control the reaction starting and stopping at will, and generally generating, on average, maybe about 7 watts excess thermal power. Uh, talk about the process of evaluating that hopeful technology. I understand that you even swap out reactor cores and move them around and get repeatable results. Yes. Well, there's a background there, and I'm going to take a minute to uh, cover the background, okay. somewhere about 15 years into this uh, research process, we essentially looked around and said, okay, maybe we aren't the brightest people in the room. And there are a lot of people out hmm. there <laughs> performing those diverse set of experiments. Uh, and so we put together, uh, with DARPA funding at the time, uh, a whole methodology and a lab, converted our lab to being able to perform other people's types of experiments. 
And we set up a process where we would invite the researcher to come over and perform their experiment while we looked over their shoulder. And then we would perform the experiment while they looked over our shoulder. And then we go off and run it on our own and try and make improvements and things like that. And that was happening in probably the early part of the 21st century. And then five to seven years ago, um, well, I should explain that I use a phrase, independent verification and validation, and that was a lot of what we were doing. I stole that phrase from a, another unrelated project, but it's, it was mm -hmm. something that we were doing quite a bit of uh, in, in, since 2000, 2003. So about five, six years ago, uh, Robert Goddess from Berlin Energy contacted Mike. He came over and we, he actually brought his stimulation device and hooked it up to one of the experiments we were running at the time. And we proposed a process actually based on one of uh, SRI's patented uh, processes. And so we wrote a proposal to Brillouin Energy, and they found the money to fund it originally. And so we, we helped, well, there were two things. First, they had a different type of experiment that they ran one in our lab, one in their lab. Um, in the end, they actually ignored the process that we proposed, probably because it was too complicated and too difficult to control. But we ran that for a while and saw a couple of interesting things. And then we said, okay, this is a difficult to handle process, difficult to operate, difficult to analyze. And we sat down with them and designed an isoparabolic calorimeter. Um, and isoparabolic calorimeters have been used in this field uh, for, for years already. But the advantage is that it's, it's easier to perform experiments which aren't very tightly controlled, where you totally keep the temperature constant, keep the pressure constant, uh, do everything. You don't have to build a gigantic infrastructure like we did for running mass flow calorimeters to do an isoparabolic calorimeter. So we helped them design the reactor, the calorimeter, and they started building a couple of those. So for a while there, we had one up in their lab in Berkeley and one in our lab at SRI. And then a year and a half later, it grew to two up in their lab and two in our lab. And that's where we got started. And what has happened is, uh, as always happens, is you keep designing better experiments and very often, and you're based on a hypothesis, a theory, but it's... Brillouin is set up as a commercial engineering project. They don't have either the motivation or the resources to prove the hypothesis in first principles. But you can see that the hypothesis is pointing in the right direction 
because you get positive results. And a few times we were able to find their stimulation inside the calorimeter as designed by their patents did produce excess power in the order of 30 to 50% with a very conservative measurement. And then to take that particular tube and bring it down to a different calorimeter and reactor at SRI and reproduce the effect. Hmm. So, so nice. that was very interesting. And, and the hypothesis allows them to exchange parameters that can turn the effect on and off. Well, I want to ask you more about the Briun hot tube uh, right after this. Mark your calendars for the 19th meeting of the Japan Cold Fusion Research Society, JCF-19, happens this November 9th and 10th, 2018, at Uwate University in Morioka, Japan. For more information and links, go to iscmns.org. The September 16th earthquake in Hokkaido, Japan, has wrecked the laboratory of veteran Lenner researcher Tadahiko Mizuno. A GoFundMe page has been set up to help pay for replacement of the scanning electron microscope and neutron detector, as well as moving the entire lab from its damaged building. Search the Recover Lenner Lab After Earthquake GoFundMe page to support that effort, or go to our website at coldfusionnow.org for links. And we're back with Dr. Francis Tanzella, Low Energy Nuclear Reactions Program Manager at SRI International, just retired and now privately consulting. Well, Dr. Tanzella, how would you characterize the Briun hot tube? They're trying to make a technology. The science is still not fully understood. How far away are we from figuring this out for a commercial product? Well, um, first, I'd like to back up, if I can, for a second. Um, I was very saddened to hear about Professor Mizuno's lab. Um, as you know, uh, I spent quite a bit of time on Hokkaido, and it, I appreciate the problems that are up there due to this earthquake. And it's too bad because it's a, it's a very beautiful place and a great place to visit. And there was, a, in addition to uh, the university, back in the 90s, there was a lot of uh, cold fusion work being done uh, in Shin Sapporo and Hokkaido. But in yeah, fact, it's, it's a tremendous history of cold fusion in Japan. Yes. But back to uh, Brillouin Energy, um, I, since we helped design the calorimeter and I, I ran it uh, every day, I ran two of them every day for a year and a half, uh, I feel confident that the numbers that are coming out are true. So their coefficients of performance in the 1.3 to 1.5 range and regularly and an occasional very large number like 
two to four, uh, I believe are true. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not a systems engineer or a scale-up engineer, so I can't say what I think it would take to bring this to a practical device. Um, but I defer to Robert Goddess, and, and he claims given enough money over a two- to three-year period, he could be able to make a, a prototype that works at will. And I have no reason not to believe that to be true. Dr. Tanzella, uh, let me ask you this. In a recent paper published in the Journal of Condensed Matter Nuclear Science, Volume 26, uh, Michael McCubre, uh, the former director of energy research at SRI, wrote that in over 100 successful experiments at SRI, the lab was able to generate between 3 and 30% excess power. And that's still not enough for a commercial technology. Every lab seems to operate by a different theory. And Robert Goddess has his controlled electron capture idea, and he's very successful. But other researchers have different uh, models, and they're successful as well. How do you think a theory of this reaction will help the engineering for everybody? Well, if we could get uh, a theory that was universal and covered everything, um, we could then set off to prove it. Now, proving a theory to be true is a very difficult and expensive proposition. So I, I don't know if we can get there. Um, and as you know, we at SRI were always partial to Peter Hagelstein's theories. I remember over 25 years ago, um, we had invited Peter out to visit, and we were in a conference room over at SRI, and we spent eight hours listening to Peter, a spouse on quantum electrodynamics and, and things like that. Um, but theory is necessary. I jokingly tell Peter regularly that all the theories are wrong, uh, but that's, that's only half joking because the problem is there's not a good enough practical information and reproducible efforts uh, that other people have been fortunate enough to see to guide a new theory. Um, being an experimentalist, I've always believed that experiment leads theory, and sometimes people are making their job harder by trying to have their preconceived theory lead the experiment. Hmm. Um, Dr. Danzella, you've recently retired from SRI, and I understand the program you worked on is ending. Will SRI be researching any type of Lenner at all? Uh, I'm afraid not. Uh, as far as I can tell, a, a financial and economic decision was made to get out of the field that's much, much broader than Leonard. Um, as far as I can tell, by the end of the year, SRI will be out of 
R&D in general, chemistry, material science, polymers, energy, fuel cells, batteries. And and so, yes, definitely there is no prejudice against Leonard. They were actually very supportive uh, the 29 years that we worked on it. But it's a, a financial decision, which I can't get into the details of, were made to get out of a much broader energy field. And so I don't see it happening back there. Although, because they're closing down labs, they're very supportive of the soon-to-be, well, present and soon-to-be former employees uh, continuing to work in those fields, work with the same clients, um, even to the point where a couple of us have received uh, a fair amount of expensive equipment to continue our work and to try and keep SRI's former uh, clients happy and satisfied. Oh, wow, that's great. Well, what about you? What will you be doing next? Well, um, I'm still spending a lot of time with the Brilloin Group, and I hope to formalize that in the in the next month or so. Uh, and like I said, I have a fair amount of equipment that I was allowed to keep, and so oh, I'm nice. still in the process of finding space for it right now. It's uh, Part of it's being stored, and the rest of it's in 15 boxes down in my basement. Uh, But hopefully I'll find some space in the next six weeks or so and set up shop. Uh, I've already incorporated. In fact, I stole the name. I was surprised that in California I could um, register a, a company under the name of Energy Research Center, LLC. Wow. So, <laughs> so, yes, I describe it as Energy Research Center version 2.0. Nice. But, so, yeah, hopefully that will be set up with equipment. So it'll be more than just a consulting effort out of my house. And I found a space I very much like nearby. And hopefully I can secure it. And... I'll keep working in this field. Um, as It's very interesting. I sent out a broadcast note to a bunch of people in the field when I left SRI because I changed my email address and all of my contact info changed. And I got very supportive uh, responses from everybody I, I sent the note to. So I feel that I can continue in the field and hopefully contribute uh, very soon. Well, congratulations, Dr. Tanzella. Um, We wish you much success in your research. You've had a tremendous career, and I can't wait till you come back and talk again. All right. I You're very welcome, and I appreciate the opportunity and look forward to speaking with you again, Ruby. We've been speaking with Dr. Francis Tenzella, recently retired from SRI International as Program Manager of Low Energy Nuclear Reactions and now consulting privately. For more on Dr. Francis Tenzella's work, go to the new Energy Research Center website, soon to be active at energyresearchcenter.net. 
That concludes our show for today. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and, of course, find more episodes of the Cold Fusion Now podcast on our website at coldfusionnow.org. Cold Fusion Now brings you the voices of scientists from the front lines of revolutionary energy research. Join our effort and become a sustainer. Sign up to be a patron at patreon.com slash coldfusionnow. Go to our website at coldfusionnow.org for more. Until next time, I'm Ruby Carrot.